Well, it's always a privilege to be able to share the Word of God with the church. Uh, this evening, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. 1 John chapter 4, our passage will be verses 1 through 6. But before we jump into the Scriptures, I'd like for us to recall a, uh, you call it a current event from several years ago. It was December 16th, 2016. has nothing to do with the most recent presidential election, so you can take a breath. Uh, public school officials in Wyandotte County, Ohio, invited one of their state senators to give a lecture to their student body at, at one of the local high schools. And this actually happened, by the way. So the, the state senator shows up at the agreed upon date and gives a rousing lecture about being involved in, in, in politics and gave information about the political processes for state government and even took a few questions from the students and everything seemed normal at first, and although his speech wasn't entirely polished, there were some things that, that seemed a bit off about what he was saying. One of the government teachers said later, um, it, it, it seemed like he knew what he was talking about. He looked the part, and he sounded the part. The problem was, uh, this guy was not the state senator. It turns out, he was an 18-year-old college freshman, and found out that his state senator was going to give this speech to the to the high school, and he was looking for a way to have a platform and have prominence and have you know his his five minutes in the spotlight. So he called and he told the school officials that the state senator had actually resigned due to an illness and that he was appointed as the replacement. I'm not sure that's how government really works, but that's what he told them. And he asked them if they would mind bumping the scheduled date of the speech which was January 14th, to an earlier date due to his new responsibilities so, so he could still make it. Now, there were obvious red flags, obvious red flags. They asked him why they hadn't heard about this change before, and he gave them a whole myriad of reasons, and I, I won't take the time to go through all of them, but long story short, they believed him. They believed this guy. So he shows up on December 15th, and the real state senator showed up on January 14th which was the original date for the speech. So the real guy shows up, and the, the phony was, was uncovered. His deception was discovered. And he, he duped these poor people for a month, for a month. Now, I, I don't know how he managed to keep up that charade for so long, posing as a public official, but he managed it somehow. But I do know what his defense was when he was caught. This was his defense, and this is a quote from the Washington Post. He said this, quote, they could have easily Googled me, but they didn't, end quote. That was his defense. He, uh, he went to jail. And I don't know how he thought he was ever going to get away with that anyway. But this guy, he was a, he was a false representative of his state's government. He, he deceived people for a significant period of time. He was given a platform and even had access to the most impressionable people in society, kids and teenagers. There were evident red flags, but nobody really seemed to, to care about it. He looked and sounded legitimate, and this can even be the case in the professing Christian world. And believe it or not, that's going to propel us into our text this evening, which is 1 John chapter 4. And our, our primary text will be verses 2 through 6, but I want to begin reading in verse 1. And as we'll see in a moment, verse 1 is going to function kind of like a proposition statement, and John's argument is going to flow right out of verse 1 into the coming verses. So please follow along as I read 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now in chapter 3, John concluded his section of teaching regarding loving the truth of God. 1 John 3 shows us that love for the truth is evidenced by obedience to the truth. Verse 24 of chapter 3 says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So an indicator of saving faith is love for God and his truth as evidence in your obedience to the truth. John now turns from focusing on love for the truth to the importance of belief in the truth, the right truth. From the outset of the temptation of Eve, Satan has sought to distort and deny the word of God. So in 1 John 4, there is a clear call to discernment. This is about discernment. That's what John is dealing with in our text this evening. Now, before we really jump into the passage, I think it's going to be helpful for us to define the word spirit for a moment. This word spirit occurs eight times in these six verses, so it's going to pop up a lot. Verse 1 contains the word twice. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So we better have a clear understanding of this word because we've already encountered it twice. And I think sometimes when we read this particular passage, we can inadvertently deny the reality of what's going on here, of what the scriptures are telling us happens when it comes to false teaching. So what does John mean when he says spirit? Each of the eight times this word is mentioned in our passage, it's, it's a form of the word pneuma, which is just the general word for spirit. And I could go through different options for, for uh, what, this, what this word is talking about, but, but the answer appears in, in the text itself. So we're going to defer to the scriptures um, regarding what the word spirit is talking about. Look at verse 1 again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, singular, but test the spirits, plural, to see whether they are from God. Now, here's the punchline in verse one, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The usage of of the word spirit in in our text needs to be understood in this context of of teaching and knowing whether or not it comes from God. This is biblical doctrine versus false teaching. And the mention of the Holy Spirit in verse 24 of chapter three prompts John to inform his readers that other spirits exist as well. Namely, demonic spirits who produce false teachers and false prophets in order to propagate false doctrine. And that's been Satan's goal from the beginning when he tempted Eve to twist what God said to deceive the masses and raise people up to twist what God says. So before we dive in any deeper, let's understand that this is what drives false teaching no matter the circumstance. 
whether the false teacher is deceived himself or herself or whether he or she is an intentional deceiver is inconsequential to this point. John is saying that there is something spiritual that goes on when false teaching is, is declared. And on the flip side of that coin, there's something spiritual going on when the truth of the word is declared. And we'll look at that tonight. False teachers simply are not just well-intentioned people simply trying to figure out the scriptures. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognizes that reality and gives us as believers this warning that many false prophets have gone out into the world and they are being driven by a spirit and it's not the Holy Spirit. That's the reality that we're faced with. That's the weight that this passage brings to us as believers. John calls us to test the spirits in verse 1. The verb is dakimatso, which means essentially to examine. It's, it's, it's a term used in metallurgy. You, you examine the metals to determine their purity and to discover any blemish that might tarnish the value of the metal. So we're not to test the spirits in the sense of poking and prodding and provoking, certainly not, but rather to critically evaluate We know this as well because John says, do not believe every spirit. Instead of believing every spirit, rather, we are to have discernment. This passage is about knowing the truth from error. And John's John's letter consistently points to the fundamental characteristics of a regenerate Christian. This, what we're going to talk about tonight in this passage, this is an evidence of regenerating faith. A Christian is somebody who possesses discernment because fundamentally a Christian believes the right things, right? It might not be precise or refined at first, but there should be a desire to cultivate that and a growth in maturity toward the truth. So in verses 2 through 6, there's instruction in how we as believers are are to discern what is of God and, and, and what is not. I've heard MacArthur say recently, The greatest threat to the Western evangelical church is a lack of discernment. And I think that's very true. So how do we know what the truth of God is? Well, the truth of God is the word of God, right? It's God's inspired word. It's his revelation to us. The message of God is found in the word of God. It's not found in subjective feelings. It's not found in voices out in the woods. It's found in the scriptures. But what about those who look and sound Christian, who have a platform and a following, but something about their message is just off. Maybe they even have the word in their hand, but something is just off. That's what this passage is primarily concerned with. So we have a call to Christian discernment in this passage. And John provides three evidences to discern truth from error. Three evidences to discern truth from error. The first one being the contents of its confession, verses 2 and 3. Secondly, the core of its power in verse 4. And lastly, evidence 3 is the context of its message in verses 5 and 6. And we'll go through these individually. So let's begin with evidence 1, the contents of its confession in verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. This is the first evidence that helps us discern truth from error, the contents of its confession. 
What is the main characteristic of a false prophet? False prophecies, right? Prophecies that don't, that don't come true. False teachings that lead people away from God and lead people away from the truth of Scripture. The content of what somebody says is important. Specifically, in this context, in 1 John 4, what is said about Jesus Christ. So within this evidence, we have the spirit that confesses Christ is from God, in verse 2, and the spirit that does not confess Christ is not from God. Pretty simple structure for us tonight. Look at verse 2. By this you know the spirit of God. John begins with a positive element as he begins his argument. At the root is the inherent Christian confession that Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Is that present? Is that there? By this you know the Spirit of God. This can be understood as, as the Holy Spirit. This is how you know that a teacher is garnering his message, message from the Spirit of God. Now, John has worded this in such a way as to speak to a particular situation, a particular false teaching that his immediate readers would have been confronted with and, and that they would have known very well. This issue of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh with a physical human body. As predicted by Paul in Acts 20, false teachers began to arise from within the church, men whose thinking was saturated with, with philosophical trends and cultural trends began to pervert the fundamental teachings of the apostles. And, and this is verified by John in verse 1 by his saying that many false prophets have, have gone out in, into the world. Now, where have they gone out from? Sadly, many go out from, from the church. This is the case even today. You look at a majority of the false teachers today who are perpetuating perverted Christian doctrine and exporting it in, into the rest of the world. You eventually find out that many of them, if not all of them, came out of gospel preaching and Bible believing churches. That's that's the biblical reality there. First John two, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. This is the sad reality that, that we're faced with sometimes. These specific false teachers John is referring to were within the church, and they advocated a new and unbiblical way of thinking about their faith that we now know and refer to as Gnosticism. And if you studied Gnosticism at any length, you quickly realize that it is not biblical doctrine. It is a heresy. You cannot believe it and be a Christian because it perverts so much of what God says. In his word, Gnosticism was was heavily influenced by the philosophers of the day. And and they advocated this this type of dualism, which asserted that physical matter was inherently evil and the soul was inherently good. And, and even though they did affirm certain aspects of the deity of Christ, they denied his humanity and twisted the doctrine of the incarnation in order to try and preserve Jesus from evil. Imagine that preserving Jesus Christ from evil. This messed up so many elements of their thinking. This messed up their bibliology, what they believed about the scriptures, because there was no authority from which these, these false teachers spoke. It was the philosophical academics who claimed a type of mystical knowledge that only the initiated were privy to. So no authority of scripture. This heresy wiped out the biblical atonement. Because if Jesus were not a, a man with a physical body who physically suffered and physically died, then the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ wouldn't have been acceptable to God. We know that from Hebrews chapter 2. 
he had to become like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So biblical atonement was gone. This heresy also influenced their homardiology, what they believed about their own sin. They believed that because their physical bodies were inherently evil, but their souls were inherently good, they could commit sinful acts with their bodies, and it didn't really matter because there was no connection between their body and their soul. Therefore, all acts of immorality were permissible, and disregard for God's holy standard was encouraged among these professing Christians. So a biblical understanding of sin and their need for Savior was gone. The beginnings of this belief system is what John is combating here with this simple statement in verse 2 of Jesus coming in the flesh. Now, it's not likely that explicit Gnosticism is walking around in our backyards today. So why, why go through that? We go through this because our theology... What we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about ourselves and our own sin gets practical real fast. And although John is speaking to a particular situation here, we can use this formula to sharpen our own discernment to understand that doctrine matters. As you can tell, that aberrant aberrant belief about Jesus not having a human body is inseparably connected with major doctrines which made the whole belief system a heresy. But you might not know that if you don't have discernment, if you don't examine, if you don't critically evaluate this, this new strange way of thinking about the Scriptures. It might not seem like a big deal. And I think it can be easy sometimes for us to think that, that doctrine is, is just heady academic or even seminarian conversation that's just unnecessary for the everyday Christian. I mean, what does it really matter as long as we all just believe in Jesus, right? Let's just major on the majors and minor on the minors. I understand that sentiment. I, I understand what, what that's trying to accomplish. But that's a, that's a perilous philosophy to live by if you don't have discernment, if you don't know how to determine what is and what is not a major and minor issue. Doctrine matters. False doctrine, the reality is, keeps you dead in your sins. And whether or not you realize it, it influences the way you live your life, just like the early Gnostics. It permeates every aspect of your thinking and and your lifestyle. John is saying again that doctrine matters. Specifically here, the doctrines of Christ matters. What you believe about Jesus Christ matters. So how do we know who Jesus is? We know through his word. We have the revelation from God. We don't need a teacher to to summon mystical knowledge from some place out in the woods to tell us who our Savior is. You have the Word of God in your hands. The Word of God shows us exactly who Jesus is and what His work accomplishes in the lives of those who believe. We find out about our Savior and the revealed truth from God's Word. The incarnate Son of God who made propitiation for our sins, who was fully God and fully man, and belief in that truth is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Nobody can truly utter the inherent Christian confession that Jesus is Lord except by the work of the Holy Spirit. Something spiritual goes on when the truth of God is proclaimed. And this goes hand in hand with what John is saying in our text. 
This is not only an evidence of saving faith, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's lead us into verse 3. The Holy Spirit is at work in the life of a believer, but there's, there's another spirit that denies Christ in verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. John began on a positive note. Now he transitions to the negative side of this coin, and it is worded differently than verse 2. You'll notice that John says every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There's no mention of this coming in the flesh. The reason for that is because John is building something here. Personal allegiance to the biblical Jesus is what is at stake in this passage. It's not just understanding one particular doctrinal position. Belief in correct doctrine leads us to allegiance to our Savior that involves making a fuller confession. The fundamental issue is, is what is done with Jesus Christ. A false teacher and just unbelievers in general do not confess the same things about Jesus as true born-again Christians do. There are some who are, who are religious and might even believe in similar things or have similar morals, but don't, be, don't believe in Jesus at all. Not only this, believing in, in Christ versus not believing in Christ, but verse 3 clearly indicates who the Jesus is in whom a person is putting his or her trust. What Jesus are you aligned with? What Jesus do you confess? You know, living in the Bible about somebody starts talking about Jesus, you almost have to pause and ask, who are you talking about? Who do you mean when you, when you mean Jesus? Some of the time, it's, it's a Jesus that's foreign to Scripture. It's, it's a Jesus that's fashioned in their own image, in the image of man. Like we've already talked about, beliefs become very practical. If you're trusting in a Jesus Christ of your own creation, then you're going to be functioning according to the flesh in just about every area of life. John is saying that the spirit that denies the biblical Jesus Christ is, is not from God. The word tells us that what we do with Jesus matters. Does your belief about Jesus make null and void the scriptural revelation of Jesus? If it does, you're believing in the wrong Jesus there are Christian-sounding teachings that use the name of Jesus floating around everywhere in our culture now. There are Christian-sounding messages coming out of non-Protestant to relig religions to movements even within the professing evangelical world. And if you boil these religions and movements and individual teachers down, you quickly realize what they do with Jesus Christ. For, for, for many Roman Catholics, the, the sacrifice of Christ was, was not once for all and is not totally sufficient for salvation, there's got to be works as well. For Mormons, Jesus is the half-brother of Satan. Show me that in Scripture somewhere. And for many in what's called the Word of Faith movement within evangelicalism, the Jesus many believe in is not the only begotten of the Father. This is not Jesus. This is not the biblical accounts of our Savior. The Word of God tells us that this matters, and what you believe about Jesus Christ matters to your soul. There is only one Jesus Christ, and he's not a Gumby action figure. You can contort any way you want. God has told us who our Savior is. John goes on to say in verse 3, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's quite a claim by John. It's, it's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's a sign of the last days and the final rebellion of evil against Christ. In 1 John 4, John's saying that the very spirit that inspires the rebellion that we read about in the book of Revelation that Pastor Farrell has been preaching through, the spirit that will give rise to the false Christ, the Antichrist, 
That spirit is at work now. That power is out now. 1 John 2 speaks of the characteristics of Antichrists denying the biblical Christ and loving the world. The spirit of Antichrist stimulates those who deny the biblical Jesus. It, it inspires the false doctrine that leads people away from the truth. This is the gravity that we're faced with. What you believe matters. So false teaching and false confession isn't just not from God. It's not sourceless. It's got a point of origin, which is the spirit of Antichrist. And it's here influencing people now. And this is what drives false confessions. It's what drives false teaching and false beliefs about false Christs. So the first evidence that helps us discern truth from error is the contents of its confession. Let's move on to the second evidence, which is the core of its power. The core of its power in verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. This is the second evidence that helps believers discern truth from error, the core of its power. And this is exclusively positive for believers. This is a call for believers to remember the one who is at work in them. The evidence is the power of God, which is at work through the biblical gospel in the life of a believer. So within this evidence, in this verse, there's the surpassing greatness of the one who is in us and the insufficient power of the one who is in the world. You are from God, little children. John is sharpening a contrast here. You are from God in divergence from the spirit of the Antichrist. You are not from the spirit of the Antichrist, believer. You are from God. Your source is God. These are such rich words. You are from God, little children. The children of God are, are specifically addressed. It's a term of endearment. It's, it's familial language. There are times in, in John's letter when he refers to his readers this way. And there are times when John specifically defines believers as children of God. In fact, believers are referred to this way nine times in the book of 1 John. An example of that is 1 John 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, such as we are. Also in verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. If you are in Christ, if you're a believer, then you are children of God and you serve him by obeying his word. The regenerating power of the gospel is evidence through the life of a believer. The power of the truth of God is evidenced in a born again Christian. And John calls believers not to be deceived in 1 John 3. Our text this evening is, is simply a reinforcement of what John has already stated in previous passages. Do not be deceived. And here in 1 John 4, here's how you know if a spirit is deceptive. What power is at work through the message that's being proclaimed? The regenerating power of Christ through the truth of God is evidenced through biblical repentance of sin and new life. Titus 3, 5, and 6, another favorite passage of Scripture. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. There is regeneration in the life of, of a child of God. 
God is evidenced through the life change that comes in salvation. So again, it is the utmost importance what is done with the person and work of Jesus Christ because he is the basis of salvation. John also says that believers have overcome them. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. John's optimism is is showing here with these words. He's utterly confident that victory has been achieved. It has been achieved. It's already happened. It's an assured victory for a believer. The power of God is evidenced in the life of a believer, specifically having overcome them. Now, the natural question is, who is the them? Who is John talking about? Who has been overcome? Well, the text shows us who they are, who the them is. The previous verses have told us. It's the false prophets and false teachers and the spirit of Antichrist. He is referring to the ones who uphold and drive error. Now, John's not saying that they've all been driven out of the church physically or, or they don't have the ability to still teach their false doctrine. Just turn on TBN or Daystar and you can see, see false teachers with big stages and followings all the time. John is saying to us, because you are from God, you have the ability to withstand error and not be deceived. This is the mark of a, of a Christian. A redeemed child of God is not led away by the deceivers and their message. We have overcome them in that sense. Paul's speaking to the redeemed believers in, in Ephesians 4, and, and he says this very thing. Believers are not to be thrown around by every wind of doctrine or by everything that might sound Christian and good to the ears. But we are to speak the truth in love. Paul doesn't say speak error in love. Speak the truth in love. Knowing the truth matters to your Christian walk. Believers possess a power, if you will, that conquers triumph over false belief. But it's not due to any strength that you possess in of yourself. But it's due to the fact that the one who is in you, the one who is in a believer, is greater than the one who is in the world. The power is all God's. The work is all God's. Look at verse 4. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have on display for us here the surpassing greatness of the one who works in us. And this verse is is pulled out of its context a lot, and it's it's easy to do that. I admit it's really easy to do that because this is this is a universal truth. God is greater. He's greater. There's no circumstance, no diagnosis, no natural disaster, no financial crisis, and nobody else's sin against you that undermines the greatness of the living God. It's a scriptural reality. Believer, the one who you're from, the one who's raised you to life from the helpless state of sin, the one in whom you have your allegiance is greater than any circumstance you find yourself in. The Lord Jesus Christ says this in John 10, 28. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. All of scripture affirms that, that God is greater than anything you might encounter in your life. But let's not forget as well that John's saying this right here in this passage for a specific reason in this context. We can see the surpassing greatness of the one who works in us, but not in an abstract way. We also see the insufficient power of the one who is at work in the world. These go hand in hand. Because greater is he who is in you rather than he who is in the world. John's not abstractly stating that that God is greater. God is greater than something. He is greater than, than a power that is perilously dangerous to you. 
this comparative particle than is the hinge of this passage. And I think it may be a significant word in our six verses tonight because so many implications fly off the page. The power of the one who is at work in the world, the power of the spirit of Antichrist, the deceptive power of the devil is not what is at work in you, believer. Rather than that, the greater one who is the living God is in you, believer. The power of the one who is in the world is insufficient. The power of the one who is in the world cannot and does not compare to God. John tells us that the cause of your victory over false doctrine and false teachers is the overwhelming power of God over the deceiving powers of the devil. You have overcome the deceivers. You are not led away from your Savior because the greater one is at work in you. The message and messengers of false teaching aren't the only ones who have been overcome. But the very power that drives their message has been overcome. The spirit of Antichrist has been overcome by the living God. And that is in you. The living God is in you. The power of deception has not overtaken you. And there is not a greater spiritual power that needs to be overcome for the sake of your soul. The deceptive power of sin is what leaves you condemned before a holy God. You are helpless in of yourself. You are unable to conquer this power. You are deceived to the nth degree apart from the Holy Spirit of God, opening your eyes to the reality of the atoning work of Christ. And this is done through hearing the truth of God, the gospel. 1 John 3, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You see what John's getting at here? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, annihilates the works of the devil, utterly obliterates the works of the devil. The greater one is in you rather than the one who is in the world. The power of the devil has been overcome in your life by the Lord Jesus Christ. No false teacher, false doctrine, or spiritual power of the devil has the ability to steal you from God. I mean, you you can't help but be reminded of, of Paul's parallel theology of the cross in Romans 8. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The power of God is at work in the believer and produces new life. That's the evidence. The deeds of the flesh are put to death and the righteousness of Christ is put on all through the work of the one who is greater. The life of a regenerate Christian who is speaking the truth of God will look radically different than that of a false teacher because the power of God, he who is greater, is at work through the truth of God in the life of a Christian. The majority of false teachers, in fact, probably all of them, are wrought with scandal in their lives, wrought with it. Indulgence in and celebration of immorality and obsession with with money, fame, and prominence, all common characteristics of false teachers. You can see what power is at work in them. So the first evidence that helps us discern truth from error is the contents of its confession. The second evidence is the core of its power. Now we're brought to the third evidence, which is the context of its message. The context of its message in verses 5 and 6. 
they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. First, within this evidence is the context of the message of Antichrist in verse 5, and in verse 6 is the context of the message of Christ. It's a pretty simple structure again. Verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. So within this context of the message of Antichrist is its source, its words, and its fixation. Its source, its words, and its fixation. And we'll go through all three of those. First is its source. They are from the world. Essentially, where is its origin? Where is it coming from? Where does this teaching originate from? Where is its source? Now, John is drawing a distinction here. In in verse 4, he said, you are from God. Now he is saying, they are from the world. It's it's a third person plural, they. It's a different group that is separate from you who are from God, separate from believers. Their source is not God. They are from the world. Next is its words. Therefore, they speak as from the world. These are the words, and I I think the methodologies of the world. They speak like the world speaks and do what the world does. So-called professing Christians speaking with worldly terminology and worldly self-centered methods, sprinkling in Christian-sounding language and perhaps a Bible verse or two. It sounds Christian, it it, it sounds legitimate, but, but it's void of biblical truth. One of the TES campus pastors, Richard Caldwell, has has been really helpful to me in terms of this. He said, if you can take scripture out of the message and still have the message, then it's not from God. I think that's really helpful. If you can take scripture out of the message and still have the message, then it's not from God. Essentially, a, a false teacher speaks like the world speaks, and his message is void of the word. You're fully able to take scripture out of his or her message and still have it, still have the message. This is because it's it's not from God. It's an evidence. There are well-intentioned believers as well who speak like the world speaks, unfortunately. I'm, I'm waiting to hear the testimony of someone who has led to genuine repentance of sin and genuine faith in Christ through Christian rationalism. I'm waiting, waiting to hear it. There are well-meaning and and believing men and women who are infatuated with big words and worldly philosophies because the Word of God just isn't enough. It's just not enough for some people, unfortunately. The sufficient Word of God is declared as insufficient because that's what the world wants to hear. You know, the world wants to hear from Christians that God's Word is not enough. The world wants to hear that from Christians because it gives people an excuse not to submit themselves to God. If we say as Christians, God's word is not enough. That brings us to its fixation. They speak as from the world and the world listens to them. The fixation of the message is on those who are in the world. Who is listening? Is it the people of God or is it the world? John is talking about the messages that the world wants to hear. They like it, they want it, they pursue it, they surround themselves with teachers who will speak it. This point isn't so much about the ones teaching, but but rather the ones listening to it. This is how you know if it's the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. 
Who is the message fixated on? Who's the preacher targeting with their message? You know, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. There will come a time when people will not stand for sound doctrine. People will not tolerate sound doctrine. We hear that word floating around a lot, tolerate and tolerance. People will not tolerate the word of God. This is why Paul commissions Timothy to preach the truth in season and out of season. No matter what the culture says, you preach the truth, Timothy. They will not want to hear what God's word says. They will accumulate teaching for themselves in accordance to their own desires, surrounding themselves with people and teachers who will just affirm what their flesh wants to hear. It is by the world and it is for the world. Not only the word of God being outright denied, but the word of God being twisted. And, and we see this today. People trying to find ways to use the word of God to justify all manner of aberrant behavior and lifestyles while still claiming faith in God. The truth of Scripture being twisted in order to ease the consciences of those who desire to live according to the flesh. John is desperately trying to make a distinction between truth and error. We must be about knowing the truth. And that brings us to verse 6, the context of the message of Christ. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. This is the context of the message of Christ. And within this context is its source, its fixation, and its rejection. Its source, its fixation, and its rejection. And again, we'll go through each, each one of those. First is its source. We are from God. This is our source. John is saying again that we are from God. Now, he's not doing this just to, to, to reemphasize that fact. He is reemphasizing it, but, but, but his primary purpose is to draw distinction. Again, he did that in verse four. He did that in verse five. And now he's doing it again in verse six. It's layer upon layer upon layer of this distinction that he is making between truth and error, believers and unbelievers. They are from the world. We are from God. Our message comes from God through his word. Their message come comes from the world and the spirit of Antichrist. There's a clear distinction being made here between those who are of God and those who are of the world. This now isn't just about the teaching anymore. This is this is about the people themselves. Scripture makes distinctions between those who teach false doctrine and those who teach the truth. This is about the people. Scripture does this because there are times when distinctions must be made in order to discern what is the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Here's a quote by Justin Peters. Sometimes false teachers are given a credibility that they do not possess and of themselves, and it is given to them by the good guys. This is because accommodation is, is given to error. Occasionally, you see prominent Orthodox preachers looking over false teaching, usually in order to accomplish some, some kind of social cause in the culture. This, this causes confusion, not, not clarity for discerning Christians. And when I arrived at this section of text during my during my sermon prep, I, I was immediately reminded of the parable of the good shepherd. It's an implication for my own heart. The, the imagery that Jesus provides of, of wolves circling out on the horizon and the good shepherd standing among the clueless flock being watchful. The sheep are going about their business, perhaps don't even notice the wolves in the distance. But the shepherd is there and sees them and is ready 
not drawing attention to the wolves, not freaking the sheep out, not fleeing or absolving himself of his shepherding responsibilities, not scattering the sheep, definitely not bringing the wolves in, but watchful and ready. I was reminded that that under shepherds will stand before the good shepherd and give an account for how he watched over the souls entrusted to him. So John is making a distinction by reminding us that we are from God. They are from the world. Essentially, a true teacher from God who who wields the truth of God speaks God's word and his message is void of the world. If you take scripture out of his message, then you have no message left. It's all about the word. We are from God. Our message comes from his word. And that message is, is not designed to be for the world. That brings us to its fixation. Who's listening? In verse six, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Who is listening to the word of God? Who is listening to the message of Christ? Back to the parable of of the good shepherd in John 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Those who are of God know his voice. Believers and those who will be believers listen to his voice. Listen to the word of God. The people of God listen to the message of God that's given from the word of God. So how do you discern spirit of truth from the spirit of error? Who's listening? Who's listening? Is it the world or is it the church? The true church. Not only that, but lastly, who, who says no? Who hears the word of God and says no? He who is not from God does not listen to us. This is its rejection. Who is rejecting the word of God? Again, John is adding layer upon layer to this distinction that he's making with these contrasts. Who is listening to the word and who's rejecting it? Who is heeding the truth and who is saying no? A consideration from this verse is that we should be reminded that many will reject the truth. A common objection to biblical discernment today is this. Look at all the people that are following this guy's teaching. Look at all the people in this movement over here. Something must must be right that the spirit of God must be at work in in, in this man and in, in this movement over here. I think we ought to be careful of mass mobs who are following certain movements or new ways of thinking about Scripture. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that find it. Christ always said that his followers are going to be the minority until he returns and establishes his kingdom. Large numbers of people are going to reject him. That's why we must be about the word of God and not be deceived. Many are walking the broad path. Many are deceived. This is why discernment is so necessary. The reality is there may be a spirit at work in and through a false teacher, but it is not the Holy Spirit. We must know the truth. We as believers are from God, the scripture says. We have the truth. So let us proclaim it. This world and those in it are, are dying in their sins apart from God, completely deceived. The only thing that can change a person's heart is the transforming power of the gospel. No worldly methodologies, no worldly terminologies. The gospel changes people's hearts. 
Paul describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we have that message. You have that message in your hand. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Our text is rounded out by this final reminder that we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error by these evidences, the contents of its confession, the core of its power and the context of its message. I hope you see how abundantly important it is to get the truth right, to get Jesus Christ right. Our Savior who made propitiation for our sins, whose once for all sacrifice is totally sufficient for you and whose righteousness is given to you when you repent and believe. Why would you want or need any other message than that? Let's pray together.